This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Hello and welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on August 17th, 2014. My name is Mr. Clean. I'm Andy. This is episode number 77 where we are discussing Todd Haynes' 1995 film Safe, starring Julianne Moore, which was chosen by listener Josh after winning the listener trivia question contest. So Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? Sure. Thanks, Andy. (laughs) Carol, a typical upper-middle-class housewife, begins to complain of vague symptoms of illness. She has unexplained headaches, congestion, a dry cough, nosebleeds, vomiting, and trouble breathing. Her family doctor treats her concerns dismissively and suggests a psychiatrist. Eventually, an allergist tells her that she has environmental illness. Her body is rebelling against the overload that her immune system has to deal with as she is continually exposed to all the chemicals that we inhale, ingest, and absorb daily. In essence, she has become allergic to the 20th century. She sees Renwood as her only salvation, a new-age center run by Peter Dunning, a cliched, easy-talking, demagogic guru. We also, um, we were fortunate enough to receive an email from Josh. Oh yeah, we did. Who elaborates on why he chose safe and what he admires so much about it so josh writes to me safe (laughs) i sound like an old lady there hang on a second to me safe to me safe says so much about oppression better than anything outside of kubrick when i first saw it on vhs in my latter teens i was convinced it succeeded where something like american beauty failed but it is not just about suburban discontentment a crumbling loveless marriage it is about the suffocation of society as a whole and how we seek escape through doctors spiritual leaders and others that share the same belief system but that belief system is subject to corruption the more we seek answers to our problem it's not just about sickness but a spiritual struggle between the self and the outside world to me one of the more terrifying moments involves driving on the highway but it's not about the pollution she encounters It's the realization that we live in an overcrowded and oppressive society that she can't escape from. I love everything about SAFE, including the possibility of Haynes, whether intended or not, including an interesting gay subtext as well. Okay, so, uh, Andy, how many drive turkeys for SAFE? I think that just about wrapped it up. (laughs) We don't really have to do anything, right? Well, actually, I do have the, the gay subtext. Now, when I was at Ohio State, this still happens. Criterion people from the yeah. Criterion collection. Pimp come your quite education. Often. Yeah, um, people from the Criterion collection come quite often, and uh, one of one of the times that they came, they were talking about, oh, we're going to have a uh, in the future, we're going to release a film, uh, a, a, a new queer cinema film, and uh, the guy that was moderating the discussion was like, oh, is it the one that I'm thinking of? And he's like, yeah, I think it is, and he goes, does it rhyme with hafe? 
He's like, yes, it does. So it's safe. And other than Todd Haynes directing it, I never saw, like, a gay subtext. I don't know if I'm missing it or... And I was deliberately looking for something because of their discussion. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, I agree completely. I, uh... Well, I kind of mentioned this over uh, Facebook last night about my feelings regarding people who make kind of amplify the AIDS subtext and uh, and then also how it that kind of potentially hinting at Carol being gay. I think I've read that Todd Haynes has said that he was completely interested about in making an allegorical film. And I think by making her gay or that she's contracted HIV only bogs down the whole piece because I think if you want to be allegorical about something, you don't directly mention what your allegory is throughout the film. And I think, and I do think people who claim that Carol is gay are making that assumption based off of what they know about Todd Haynes. Because if she is gay and she does have AIDS, that completely displaces the ambiguity that runs throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the setting of 1987 and how that directly rates relates to where AIDS was at the, at this point in the United States and in the political discussion going on and the inclusion of the two characters with AIDS, I almost think is used as a way to sort of throw you off of his scent. I think it's meant to kind of almost complicate what your reading of the film is. Because I, I do think um, as sort of didactic and amb- ambiguous of a movie Safe is, and granted, we both have only seen this once, and I think this is a movie that would, its value would increase with multiple viewings. Um, so there might be things that we just completely yeah, don't totally, get to. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. But I think if you watched it enough times, it is sort of stripped down and minimalist enough and seems to kind of be a movie that is sort of about inviting its audience into the narrative discussion within the film. I don't want to say it would be easy, but you would start to really pick up on sort of the techniques that he's applying and essentially sort of what the mechanism is that I guess is driving the story forward. So I think... There's an allegory about illness, but I think it's less specific to AIDS. I think he's using AIDS treatment culture. Yeah, I I agree with that. It's more of like a commentary on, not even, I mean, there's a sense about the AIDS treatment culture, but just how a lot of people treat unusual diseases. Right, and and they they go this holistic route. Yeah, yeah. how you're saying that uh, watching this film multiple times will probably reveal more things and I completely agree with you. I also think um throughout this whole film I was I felt that I would feel better about, about this although I really like this film. Um I would feel more comfortable with uh with what I'm seeing or digesting what I uh, what I'm saying by reading um like more feminist texts and even more um more even like um theoretical writing on the concept of feminism because I do actually see this more as a feminist piece than say a piece about Un, un, you know, unexplained diseases or or any kind of gay subtext, to be honest with you. Well, we both read that piece that was... So you read that whole thing? Yeah, that was written by Julie Grossman, which I'll link yeah. in the show notes on the website. But she draws a lot of comparisons to um, Charlotte Perkins Stetson's The Yellow Wallpaper. And I think it's impossible not because it's even mentioned in the 
film. Yeah, which honestly, I <laughs> if you had not shared that essay, I don't even think I would have picked up on the fact that she directly mentions yellow wallpaper at some point in the movie and what she was hinting at, which is kind of funny because I just read this a collection of this woman's short stories, uh, I think a little over a month ago. But that is a that is a short story is about a woman who's suffering from what she's been described to by her her husband who's a physician as nervous depression and she's being kept in this room that has walls lined with this yellow wallpaper that she just is repulsed by and she becomes convinced that there are people inside the wallpaper and eventually she tears all the wallpaper off and then once her husband comes and discovers this he sort of faints in terror and that's sort of how the story ends spoiler alert sorry if you're gonna read uh, the yellow wallpaper but it is such sort of like a specific imperfect comparison yeah because the story functions i think in the the much the same way that safe does though i mean that whole book uses sort of motifs of horror fiction to analyze a woman's role within a marriage and how because yeah. she is of an upper well, class. Well, not even just marriage. Not even marriage, just society in general. Right. And 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 how she's being she's being repressed yeah. by that. Not you know, her husband tells her not to work, um, not to be mm-hmm. active. Everything that she does has to sort of be written off as okay by him. He she, she well, Go ahead. Every, every step of the way that she's in, even up to going to that new age clinic, it's all She's always subservient to a male. A male is always telling her what to do. She never escapes that. Even when she thinks she does, she doesn't. And the way that he introduces that with them having sex, where she's she's immediately put in this position of submission. Yeah. Well, like how it was in the essay, how how uh, she was compared to a, a like a Marxist worker. She's just doing her job. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what, for so long, that's what that was known as. You know, that's the wife's job. You know, that's the woman's job to do that, you know. And it's even how that that extends, well, I guess that submissive behavior extends even with her stepson, mm-hmm. where... That, oh, yeah, because he can, his attitude towards her is com- completely different than what I think is probably, like, he is with, like, say, his biological mom. He doesn't have a respect for her, and I think it's important that he made that her stepson as opposed to her biological son. Well, I do. I did have a question about that was, um, and maybe now that I'm thinking about it, it's not so much a question, but when I was, while I was watching the movie, it takes about 15 minutes for it to introduce that there is even a child living in the house. Yeah. And then it takes another, I think at the 40 minute mark when she's in with the therapist it int- it reveals that that is not her biological son. Now, mm-hmm. I think you could maybe make that presumption. I didn't, at least on a first viewing. But yeah. I do think maybe because their dialogues exchanges are so, so kind of – he's very hostile with her. And he's yeah. he's always dominating the conversation and cutting her off. Well, he looks down upon her, really. Why do you I mean, think – He thinks that – he definitely thinks that even though he's like 12 or so, that he's intellectually superior to her – because that goes back to the um, the scene where he's reading his essay at the dinner table and her remark, well, why is it so gory? And he goes, well, that's the way it is. Right, which he, I mean, he, he has no knowledge of oh, I know. Well, I, that's what I also thought was funny is that his, his, his essay, which was about black 
in Chicano gangs was totally like white fear bunk. <laughs> well, I do think that introduces, I think there's actually, um, there's an element of humor that I think oh, it, yeah, it, that it, ex- exists within the, like the Valley culture that he, yeah, it's like this vapid, um, they like live in a bubble mm-hmm. and just their, their, un- the way that they communicate with one another, just like the yeah. dialogue is so kind of flaccid. But um, I, my question was, why do you think he waits so long to reveal that that is her stepson? You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not 100% for certain. I don't know if it's about her, how she does just kind of like drift through existence at this point. She's just kind of running through the motions. And I don't know if that's part of it is that her life now, it, it, it is what it is in a way. Mm-hmm. And she just does it every day. This is she has a routine, and this is what she does. And I don't know if that's to her. It is what it is. I mean, that's not that's her stepson. That's just is what it is, and that's just another part of her life that she kind of finds stifling. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Yeah, um, I don't either. It was just something that I thought was. I like that he does it, and yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong. It's just I feel like in most I, I, in most films that would be centered on a woman. I feel yeah. like the maternal role that she has would be something that they would really yeah. emphasize a great deal. Well, he I almost think do like that. he being her stepson is just another part of this this life, this world just isn't her own. She doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's important that it is a stepson, but I don't know why it took so long to reveal that this is a stepson. Other than, you know, Todd Haynes just doesn't think, you know, to him that wasn't a, a, a central part because... He doesn't really do a whole lot in the film other than a couple scenes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. But uh, like I said, I think it's important that it's a stepson. Uh, but I do think... I do feel in a way that... Yeah. I, I do think he's in... His, the, the kid's important in the sense that he... Um, he almost externalizes, I think, what his father is probably thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. He is more like the id of the father. Mm-hmm. There, we do get some moments where the father does act like the stepson, like when she says she's sick when he wants to have sex with her. Right. And she says she has a headache, and he gets more, um, he gets very aggravated. The way that he reacts towards it is very, um, it's not sympath- very unsympathetic towards her. You can tell that throughout this whole process, well, through the majority of the process, he does feel some sort of sympathy for her, but at the same time, he doesn't necessarily believe what's happening to her. Did you empathize with him at all? No, but at the same time, I don't think Todd Haynes was going out of his way to paint him as, say, not a good person or an uncaring person. Because I I do think Todd Haynes does get across that, in a sense, the, the, the EI cult at Renwood, it is a cult, and it is slightly crazy. So, see, I, yeah, I don't... Well, it's, I mean, the cult, Renwood is a a mirror image of what she was living in. Right, yeah, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's the exact same thing. It's just, I guess it's it's motivated by different values, that's all. Now, I I mean, I think there are good things that come out of Renwood for her. For instance, the relationship that she does, the friend that she makes. Yeah, she develops the friend, her cooking friend. Yeah, but I suppose... That's just kind of a, a. But at the same time, we get a sense she's very um like withdrawn. You never see her smile until the scene where they're eating her 
food at Renwood when she cooked, and she's smiling with along with Chris is his name. Mm-hmm. And you can tell she's having a good time. It's really the first time you really see her having a good time. And I think she feels that she has found a place where she belongs. However, once the spotlight is put on her to talk and give a speech, she becomes very incomprehensible. She's very muddled. To me, that's Todd Haynes' way of saying she still isn't where she... She still isn't in a place where she feels comfortable. She thinks she is. She's trying to convince herself she is, but she's really not. Well, she's she's just repeating what she's been told she was to believe. I mean... yeah. All that that whole speech at the end to me is like uh it's someone attempting to articulate all the clichés of Renwood. Yeah, she's trying Who, to remember everything Peter Dunning said, but it's coming out as gobbledygook as opposed to his rehearsed reading of it. Right. And and she th- I think she thinks that she believes all of those things. All of those, yeah. But she doesn't understand them. She doesn't understand what she's saying. Like I don't know if it's because in the in the wake of everything that has happened this week, not so much with the Robin Williams thing, but how it's made mental depression, like, more of a topic to talk about. Yeah. Like, I did see a big part of this film about mental depression. I don't know if it's just because of everything that's happened in the past week, or if it's really there. Well, Um, I mean... But I saw everyone at, I saw everyone at Renwood as being depressed. They all had a depression. And instead of talking about their depression, he's telling them to swallow it in a way. Oh, well, there's that scene when they're at the, they have the one meeting outside, and there's yeah, the yeah. woman who's kind of... And everyone starts crying and stuff, and he's just talking about how blessed he is. Well, he's also that woman whose husband has died, who's like yeah. suddenly resisting everything that he's saying yeah, to her. Yeah, ang- and he's very angry, and he, you can tell he gets more antagonistic with her. Right, well, it it clearly, that clearly kind of illustrates, I think, sort of like a this sense of heterosexual power but i think it's also it also shows how in a society who thinks they're so free thinking and liberal they're still very conservative in Mm -hmm. their practices yeah but the mental depression thing i mean that was something that weighed heavily on my viewing of it i mean i don't i i see it but then i also don't know how of it how much of it is just my own my own relationship with depression right, kind of seeking yeah. its way into the movie. So I didn't, I don't know how subjective that viewing of it is, but it is something that like her search for finding some sort of treatment or a cure is something that I completely attached myself to in the sense that at one point I did look to sort of more like uh, I told you like meditation and things like that as a way to sort of, uh, I guess, seek treatment for dealing with depression. Um, Because I think one thing that the movie does do really well, I think regardless of any kind of mental illness, physical disease, anything that you have, it clearly illustrates that in the society that we live in, when you're sick, your sickness comes to define who you are as a person. Oh, yeah, totally, because well, she finds meaning in herself once she decides that she has environmental illness. Well, she has something to do. It's like something to do yeah, other oh, yeah. than, you know, take care of the house or whatever. That Go to these, you know, go to the baby showers and things like that. I think the ending is, she's right back where she's started, you know, but... Yeah. Um, but I know from my own experience, like, once you're told that you have something 
which is interesting, I guess, in this case, because she's constantly being denied. Which is kind of um, funny, because if we compare this to the yellow wallpaper, which I think is evident, there is a connection. Mm-hmm. In that time period when the yellow wallpaper was written, the whole concept of women's hysteria. And in a way, Carol is diagnosing herself with hysteria. <laughs> but everyone else is telling her that, that she doesn't have it. Well, she's got, she definitely has something. I agree that she has, I do agree that she has something, but I do think it's more psychological than physical. I don't necessarily disagree with that either, but I do think it's entirely possible that she does have environmental illness. I mean, that is a, that is a known thing. It does exist. Um, I, and, and I, we had already talked about this. Well, I don't think it's that important to the movie what she has whether she has it or not it's it's that she has something and the fact that so many people are her are denying her that 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 truth is but with my kind of with my said with my uh, (laughs) with what i was saying the women hysteria thing yeah what i was saying with more that it's um psychological is that i do think it's like not so much the chemicals that are making her ill i think it's the stifling society that's making her ill oh i definitely think it's ultimately he's the culture of that she's living in is what's making her so sick. I mean that I definitely, and I think, I think that is something that he is saying we don't take into consideration enough that so often when people are ill or whatever, they have some kind of mental disorder. We put the onus on that person instead of Mm -hmm. looking at the culture in which that person is living and how that would affect an individual. Yeah, and in connecting it further with the yellow wallpaper, I know in the yellow wallpaper there is a, there's the feeling that um, her writing, because it's a journal entries, her writing is what's helping her, in a way. And if you take that away, she'll just uh, delve even farther into her. Well, there is there is a section of the story where her entries get they're they're much smaller, and a lot of it is like. I'm feeling much better. I'm feeling much better. Like this kind of manic kind of, I'm I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. And then it kind of all kind of falls apart near the end. And and I know that's also with like the, the author of the, the yellow wallpaper is uh, her doctor told her to stop writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That'll make her feel better. And she didn't agree with that. And that she needed her doctor's her husband too. Well, no, no. In real life, not in the, Oh, Not okay. The story in real life, a doctor told her that. Well, in the story, thought, she actually has to hide the journal from her husband. Journal, yeah, 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 I knew that. Um, but there were a couple instances in the film where I felt that um, to tie into that about a woman's artistic expression is that I I felt that um, it's possible that Carol had more artistic ex- was more artistic than maybe she knew or she felt as she talked about how she was designing their living room, which I know is kind of like a t- typical middle-class housewife thing to do but also at the the baby shower when she asks her one friend did you do the wrapping paper did you do the wrapping yourself it's beautiful and her friend said you know laughed and said no honestly that that was one of the saddest moments for me because her question is so genuine oh yeah yeah and then the response that she gets is just i don't know well i i may be misremembering this, but I swear she tells her friend that I'll teach you how to rap. No, she says, I've seen you rap before. I've seen you rap before. That's what she said. Okay, I couldn't hear that part. Okay, so you can just edit out that part. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that there's, like, 
Carol wants to express herself more than the San Fernando Valley or what is that the valley that they're in? Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. The San Fernando Valley is allowing her to do, and that's what's kind of making her ill, is that it's like building up inside of her. Oh, absolutely. Every, every single interaction that she has with someone, she's constantly being ignored or being repressed or being talked yeah. to like a child. I mean, yeah. there's even the scene when the movers come in and she's telling them where she wants them to place the couches. This is before the black couch thing happens. In that tracking shot, no one in that group is listening to her. They're mm -hmm. all looking at the furniture that's already in the house. I mean, well, she they, she's like a ghost to people. Yeah. Well, when but when they they bring it back, when they bring the teal couch in and they set it in, the way that they look at her, it has such a disdaining. To me, it looked like they were looking at her with such disdain. Well, I'm sure that that is like a clash, a class uh, divide or whatever. Oh, there was that, definitely yeah. a, cla a a class. There were issues with class in that first half of the movie. Oh yeah, because well, her I also interactions it with, with the uh, the dry with cleaner, the, the housekeeper, and things like that. Yeah, and the dry cleaner, the oh your daughter's yeah. so cute, and then it's just like there's nothing else that they could talk about. Yeah, it was just stopped. It was became one of those like um, like silences that are uncomfortable silences. But then there's other things, just like when she's talking about the house, her husband doesn't want to hear her talk about how sick she is. He just has no yeah. interest in that, and that almost makes me like. Does he view her as just sort of this subservient object that's there for him? Well, she's definitely a, a trophy wife. It's his, at least it's his second wife, and she is quite a bit younger than him. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, he she's and he doesn't want her to work or do anything. So, I mean, she's definitely a trophy wife that's meant to be on display. And I think the scene where he and two other business associates go out to dinner, and where she falls asleep during the dinner. Mm -hmm kind of like even hits that home that her job is to just be seen but her falling asleep is kind of like <laughs> almost like disrespectful to the men that are there i mean she's there to be seen and be and be awake to be to act like she cares about what's happening and what's being said at this this dinner mm -hmm. um, she's very much an object in that scene that kind of doesn't do what she's supposed to do like almost like a pet well, she even has there's um there's a couple times where she's on the phone, and I remember kind of being like when her mother calls her, mm -hmm. who just dominates that conversation. Yeah, and then also when she calls the furniture company, they put her on hold before she even finishes what she's going to say, mm -hmm. to the point where she then has to later go down to the furniture company physically to straighten the thing out. Yeah, and it's still. The person working at the furniture office, well, it says black. So you filled it, like, almost like you filled it out wrong. Now we should talk about Julianne Moore's performance because it's kind of amazing <laughs> in how little she actually does, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. Like, she, her performance is very, like, paralyzed. I feel like in a lot of, uh, these sort of woman in tr trouble movies, these performances quickly become just big histrionics. And right. instead, like her performance is so minute and quiet. And the thing that she, the stuff that she does with her voice, like her vo vocal inflections is just incredible. She's so meek. I can't like believe how understated it is and how much you, and and that's kind of I think what makes the whole movie great is that it is so 
subtle and understated that you can project so much onto the movie yourself. Yeah, yeah. She could. I don't think she could have done the histrionics because then it would have been easier, easy to label her as having like women's hysteria. No, but the... but Julianne Moore has done plenty of histrionic. Oh no, yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. Like... But I, I don't think it would have been right for the, for this particular, film. No, but I'm I'm just surprised by how, how understated she understated really, she, she is. really is. Yeah, she does find the perfect voice for that character too. <laughs> I mean, she sounds like a child. I mean, she yeah, really she does. does. Yeah, no, it's like per it's like the perfect voice for that. Uh, away from um, the acting for for uh, for a moment at least is um I wanted to kind of talk about two two attack scenes. Okay. Now um the letter Josh talks about the uh, the attack while she's driving. My personal favorite attacks were the one at the dry cleaner and the one at the uh, the the beauty shop. Um, and those. The one at the beauty shop is the one where I kind of, how I said to you, oh, it's like Douglas Sirk and David Cronenberg made a movie together. The beauty shop, when she's getting her perm done, was when I was like, oh, oh, this is like if David Cronenberg made this movie. The way that he shot it to me was so sterile and yet very, like, frightening. Like, it was almost like a, like some sort of mad scientist experiment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, then, like, the sound design being, like, liquidy yeah. and bubbly, like, underneath everything, yeah. Yeah, and then at the the dry cleaners, the guys that were spraying the pesticide or whatever they were spraying, they were they were so threatening looking. They were so very <laughs> frightening. Yeah. Well, I would say even the even the the scene on the road, like the level of the smog and the smoke that's coming mm-hmm. at her, and just yeah. how through the the editing beats he intensifies. I mean, he makes that drive through the garage just seem like she she's not going to make it, like she's going to hit something. And that I guess that level, he matches her level of anxiety in the filmmaking or whatever. Now, what, what, do, you, what do you make of her being a milkaholic? I, I have no idea. I watched a video essay that like obsessed over that element of the story and that perhaps – this void in her life has to directly relate to parenthood that she mm-hmm. is not an, an actual biological mother. It's clear that the drinking milk thing doesn't help her. Um, yeah. But it is also kind of strange because it's the only time where she's ever really aggressive about anything. Like she loves drinking milk and she wants milk and she's very, she feels like when she's drinking it, it's, she needs it. It's almost like, I don't think you see her, do you see her eat actual food at any point at, in the at the yeah you do see her eat cake at the baby oh shower. that's true okay because i was gonna say if she, we only ever see her uh consuming milk um yeah and we also know she does go on that fruit diet but, yeah mm-hmm. um, oh yeah there's the scene too where she's listening to, on the headset and i think she's eating something at the, and, at the kitchen um, counter. she does have an empty plate at the scene when the rory reads his um, all right. Well, she can't stop eating then. She's just eating all the time. <laughs> he's reading his essay. She does have an empty plate. Um, but yeah, she's a milkaholic. I don't know. Um, I think everything about her life, even up to the end, is very antiseptic. I mean, she lives, I mean, the white igloo at the end, but her house is completely white. Her clothing is almost always completely white or a very light color, like very light pink or something. Her last name it is white. white. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like everything about her is so lacking in color. She's so bland. She's not a like a fully realized human being because 
her where she is in her life, it she doesn't need to be one. Well, white is the absence of color, right? So color, and then yeah. I guess you juxtapose that against Carol's at, absence of identity. Yeah, and well, color, yeah. I mean, this person has using color like this town has a lot of color to it. You know, it has a lot of things going on. It has a lot of history. I mean, people use the term color as a way to describe like something that with, with history or a lot of character Culture. or something like that. Yeah, she she lacks that completely, and uh, I also think her being from Texas is important too. Because you kind of think of like that typical Texas woman that is almost kind of like, um, I don't know that very, you think of very strong, like, uh, I guess maternal kind of thing, you know, like likes to cook chili. (laughs) Yeah. Big hair, things like that. Yeah. Very, yes. Very boisterous, very sort of aggressive nose what they want i mean this i'm i guess i'm projecting stereotypes but yeah but it's a, it is a stereotype but i mean i think that's why but i but i do think that's what he's getting at when he indicates that she's from texas i i do think yeah. he's saying that she she did not grow up in an environment like this at all yeah i do think it's interesting though how he uses the color black that's what sets her off you know, that's really the one thing that does set her off from is that black couch. Well, it's like every time black appears, something bad is not is happening. It's the black couch suddenly comes in and like it contaminates her entire yeah. home. Um, the fact that you have this white kid from the suburbs yeah. writing a paper about ethnic gang violence that's yeah. directed towards black people. Even like whenever you see the car the black car there's something kind of unsettling about the black car as well so i i don't know i i just thought that was interesting that because everything is white whenever there is color it really stands out and draws your attention now what do you think of his i i do think this meant something his use of incredibly bland generic 80s pop music when they were in situations where there would be... I mean, he doesn't use it in, like, the non-diegetic score soundtrack, just in the diegetic soundtrack of the film. What's well, at the health club. It's at the health club. Even at Renwood, you hear the, one of the songs. I mean, and it's incredibly bland. Well, the one's in Madonna song, man. Yeah, but it's not, like, burning up or anything, you know? Uh, <laughs> it's just kind of like... but And it's still... But even with the Madonna song, it's still over... It, there is no real instrumentation in it. Well, it mean, yeah, I mean, it really it even exists. The, the at, it doesn't score. mean anything in yeah, the context of the movie. Even the film score is, I believe, is a synthesized score. Oh, it's like a horror film score, yeah. Yeah, so there are no real instruments involved in it. It's all electronically created. There's nothing real about it. And if we're going to look at Todd Haynes' music choice, I mean, if we look at Velvet Goldmine and I'm Not There, he does... And that just looking at those two things doesn't mean mean that he doesn't like anything else. But his he does seem to have a proximity for like Bob Dylan and David Bowie and things like that. Mm-hmm. Glam rock. Glam rock, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something vapid about pop music. Yeah. As it is already. Especially 80s pop music. Right. Well, the whole culture of the 80s is pretty yeah. vapid. Yeah, vapid. Too. And I do think that's kind of 
a big reason why he used the 80s is kind of like and i also think like the whole concept of reagan america mm-hmm. where you're kind of like pretending things you know right i mean in the whole reagan america was like a return to 50s ideals which in a I mean, that's why, I mean, his favorite movie was Back to the Future, and he said, that's, this is the movie, this is what we need, is, like, this kind of return to 50s ideals, and, uh, pre-feminist, the pre-feminist movement, then. And in a way, that's what these housewives are living, is this pre-feminist world. Well, and Reagan was in complete denial about AIDS. Oh, yeah. As well, Well, every took him almost his, you know, his entire presidency to eventually get to the point where he would even address it. Reagan, what a guy. What a guy. Bedtime for Bonzo 2000. (laughs) So, I mean, is there anything else that we... I mean, there's, like, a lot to say about safe. Yeah. But but as you said, that I do think it's a film that you need to see multiple times. And And I do believe that it's a film that the more you read about feminist theory will also help you. Because I do think that's what this... Ultimately, I think that's what this film's about. Is um, well, I want to do. I do want to talk about women. how it. I want to talk about like the the visual language, I guess, of the movie. Okay. And I think you mentioned Douglas Sirk at the beginning, and it is very Sirkian in not just in its content, but how it frames Carol. I mean, the difference is with I think with Douglas Sirk is, you know, he did always frame his characters in these big wides, but they're always from, it's always from a low angle. Yeah, we're almost always looking down at Carol in a one. You're talking about that's how Todd Haynes frames Julianne Moore, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Douglas Sirk never shot from a high angle looking down at anybody. It was always from the low looking up. So he sort of, I guess, subverts the typical use of the low angle as like a communication of dominance. Because he was always really concerned with keeping the ceiling in the frame of a of a space, mm-hmm. so that the low angle is almost a false sense of control that the characters have in Douglas yeah. Sirk movies. In Safe, he he takes how Sirk uses mise en scène to overpower his characters. I mean, Carol is always like battling your attention with the furniture because the furniture is so fucking huge. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he just, you know, he takes what Cirque does in the 50s with that, the 50s style furniture, and applies it to the 80s. Um, yeah. And a lot of the film is these very static, long shot, deep focus photography that's very similar to Cirque. I know a lot of people make comparisons to Stanley Kubrick with this film, which is apt because I've read Ton Haynes talk extensively about how 2001 was a big influence on this film. But he also knows he's got a hard on for Cirque. Well, he's he's got a big hard on for Cirque, but I, I I the 2001 thing is interesting because 2001 is a movie that I think for some people they don't like it because it's the characters in the film are so bland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I you know, but that's that's the point I think that he's making yeah. about the future, and it is interesting I guess how he 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 takes I guess what Kubrick is predicting about the future and applies it to 80s culture and how bland all of these characters are in the film. I mean, that's not to say that they aren't interesting or boring to watch, but visually it's a very uh, a restrained film. And I think that's where Josh in his email is talking about how it deals with oppression just as well as anything Kubrick ever did. Yeah. 
Who, who doesn't like uh, 2001? I'm just saying, I, I think there are a lot of people that the people watch that, the film the now. The that... film is like Full Metal Jacket or something. Oh, God. Yeah. The more I think about Full Metal Jacket, the more I just, I don't like it. It's not a good movie. I think people that watch 2001, to, 2001 today, they come into it with all this baggage that, oh, you know, it's the greatest sci-fi movie ever made. It's one of the best films ever made. And when they don't get it, I think they're frustrated by the fact that they don't get it. Why isn't David Bowman raping anybody? <laughs> right. And I do think there is a, there's a modeling nature to that whole film, especially when you're with the human beings. But I find that really interesting. No, it's his, be- it's his best movie. Maybe. Maybe. I, it's, yes, it's his best movie. It may not be my favorite movie of his, but it, yes, it is his best movie. I mean, it's, it's definitely not a Clockwork Orange or Full Metal Jacket. Well, no. Well, those are his two worst movies, so it can't be those. Well, I mean, if we throw in like some like Fear and Desire, which we're not going to do, which I don't think he did either. No. Yeah. But yes, I agree with you otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the ending. You know, now, now, everyone that listens to this that has like a Boondock Saints poster in the wall would be like, what? Those are like the two best movies ever. Clockwork Full Orange Metal Jack and, and Clockwork Orange. Well, Boondock Saints is interesting because it's Boondock Saints is born out of the culture that I mean it's the Tarantino culture, but that's exactly I mean this movie is existing within that oh, I know. you know whole thing and like why wasn't there a like response to Safe with like a movie called Danger or something that became the cult classic that Boondock Saints cuz that's just a Tarantino ripoff that people happen to like or whatever. It is, isn't it like hyper masculine and yeah. Although Willem Dafoe plays a a gay detective who like dances in mm-hmm. the, at the crime scenes. I mean, that's the only reason why you'd watch it is because Willem Dafoe's in it. There's like no reason to watch Boondock Saints. No. What's the deal with people liking that movie? Uh, with males <laughs> liking that movie, like guys that are like eighteen to like twenty two liking that film. I just, I, I, I think it's, um, I mean, it's obviously disposable. It's something that ignoramuses can get into. I don't, I mean, Yeah, there's definitely, like, this, the, I mean, yeah, I know all this stuff will be in it, but there's definitely this, I think, this culture within the film lovers community, the cinephile community, where they like these, like, horseshit films, and they like them for all the wrong reasons. And even, like, a good movie, like, Clockwork Orange is a good movie, mm-hmm. but they like it for all the wrong reasons. Like, I think they get a kick out of the whole, like, the way Alex is, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think they feel like, oh, if laws were different, I would do that, too. Like, it feeds into, you know, the id for them. Yeah, I mean, I guess Boondock Saints is a movie that, because you've never seen it, right? No. It's a movie about, about, you know, two guys that they become vigilant vigilantes yeah. and i guess it is sort of um the white trash accessible mm-hmm. version of death wish kind of where yeah, yeah we do this if we could do it too like these guys are doing what we always want to do sort of thing yeah and i even think like kevin smith's dogma works on that level too which like, I, I remember yeah, again at, at blockbuster video that was rented a lot and all the same hillbillies that rented boondock saint rented dogma and they liked it for all the same reasons and it's just like the same thing. And I do like, they're the same people that have like this 
you know, at least at the very least, a prejudice streak in them, in them, and like a sexist streak in them, and like I think it's all the same thing, and it all works the same way, and yeah, it's they're homophobic, they're all that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did want to ask what your thoughts were regarding the ending. And I guess the the final image where she looks in the mirror and tells herself that I love you, I love you, I love you. Do you see that as like a a positive oh, thing? Not. Or no, a tragic? And when I read that um the the article that we the essay that we both read, I don't know how anyone could have seen that as a positive, unless they want they do not want to see movies with downer endings and thus will project whatever <laughs> whatever positive that they can kind of wring out of a movie. Well, it, it comes off the heels of one of the most kind of tragic scenes with the birthday party in that speech. Yeah, I know. And then all that all she's doing is she's the ending is what she thinks she's supposed to do in order to it's, feel right, better right. because she's doing exactly what that Claire character tells her, her to do. she did when she And in a way, Claire's pro- probably did it because that's what Paul Dunning told her to do. I feel like it's a clear indication of the tragedy of it when he sits on the image of that safe house, the exterior of it for so long. And you just kind of, I guess, taking in the absurdity of this structure, like how, how extreme this has, this has gone for her. Yeah. Uh, Did did you get a summer camp vibe from Renwood? (laughs) Like a summer camp for adults? I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was no, it was no heavyweights. That's for sure. No, 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 no. It definitely uh, wasn't heavyweights. But I mean, it was a summer camp for adults. I mean, even her like little flirtatious relationship with that Chris guy had like a summer camp feel to it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's summer camp for all of them, and it's you know life for Mister Big Shot up on the hill. Yeah. With that, with the house, you know, which again is just taking the piss out of this whole thing, this whole new age idea. Yeah. I mean, I do think he is. In a very subtle way, just completely condemning New Age oh, I beliefs agree with you and yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Revealing sort of the hip, the hypocrisy with within all of that. There was also one scene in the film where I was actually kind of disappointed it was in the film because I it didn't belong in the film, um, and that's the scene where we see the women at the baby shower talking about Carol. Every scene we have with Carol, I is from her. Every scene in the film is from her perspective, except for that one scene. Yeah, that is a good point. Mm-hmm. And I thought it betrayed the rest of the film. Yeah, I guess structurally it doesn't really work because we're seeing something she she has no she access has. to. And I also think it also betrays it in the sense that she, like you said earlier, she's a ghost. Yeah, well, I guess out. I guess no one should be concerned with how she's right. feeling yeah. either. Yeah. Give Todd Haynes a phone call about that one. I know, Todd. What were you thinking? Yeah, you know, just say, "Well, my name is Todd." <laughs> He'll go on some intellectual rant because I don't know if you've ever watched an interview with Todd Haynes, no, but I he's an incredibly intelligent person, mm-hmm. and I almost wonder if he's. He's too intelligent to be making movies. Like he's so <laughs> tuned in that I mean that is one thing I think for me that um I do think at times his style overstates 
sort of like the set piece scenes to a certain to some extent it like the technique that he's performing is drawing too much attention to itself like the score and the camera yeah. movement like the scene at the baby shower with the little girl on her lap yeah she has sort of the panic attack i do feel like sometimes visually it becomes a little too on the nose it doesn't sustain its ambiguity as well i don't know that that's something that i'm articulating very well but it was just this this awareness of what he's doing at all times um Mm -hmm. it doesn't alienate me from the movie but it kind of keeps me in this place where i'm sort of aware that i'm watching a film instead of Mm -hmm. sort of getting completely lost in the world of of the movie yeah that's really my only complaint i guess if that's even really a complaint it's certainly incredibly didactic and i yeah, could yeah. i would say that it's not a movie that everyone is going to come to and fall in love with i guess oh um, no no it needs more like irish guys with like clocks <laughs> yeah yeah it needed a scene where she killed her housewife and then mm-hmm. she flees it and then Willem Dafoe comes in and dances around the Well, she had the to kitchen. say some sort of like derogatory remark about like Hispanics or something. And then and then go on the run. And be the hero and be the hero of the film. Housemaids? We don't need no stinky housemaids, you know, something like that, you know. So anything else? So, <laughs> no, no. I think that's I think that's good. Okay. So how many jive turkeys will you be giving? Safe. I'm gonna give it the big five. Whoa, whoa. Five. Have you ever given a movie five jive turkeys before? Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Ooh. Uh. Uh. Um. Pretty Maids on Run. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. You know, it got the five because it made me go. Hmm, I want to read more about this movie. That's... It made me want to spend <laughs> spend my time on it, like just personal time. So I'm going to give it four and a half. It didn't make you want to crack open a book and read some sort of... No, I, I definitely want to read more about the film. I just... Um, people that I know that really love this movie, it kind of instantly becomes one of their favorite films. And it mm-hmm. didn't have that same... I didn't have that same okay. reaction to it. Um, and I'm not like in a place right now where I immediately want to go back and watch it again. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch it in the best headspace either, so I actually had a little bit of trouble getting through it. Yeah, it wasn't a safe film for you to watch. Not at all. But I, I really like it, and I mean, I've always, mm-hmm. I've always liked Todd Haynes. And Could you say that when you were watching it, you wanted to put your head against the wall? I did want to put my head against the wall and relieve myself from the trip that the film was. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it was like watching Dogs in Space, <laughs> who land on an island of lost souls. I don't remember if we're doing this film, but... Owned he... by Mr. Sardonicus. <laughs> <laughs> and Nosferatu, the vampire. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't remember if we this movie, but did it feel like you were surrounded by devils? I was... <laughs> There are no other titles that would be good puns. All the yeah, other ones would just be completely random. Um, mm-hmm. Did you catch the connection that this movie shares with Seinfeld at all? Oh, man. Was the suit Nazi in it? No. Crazy Joe <laughs> no, I... DeVola. 
man. He's the uh, doctor that's administering those like allergy tests. Mm-hmm. I was, and then there's even the moment where he goes off screen to answer the phone call. And I was yeah. so hoping he was going to say he was going to put the kibosh on someone. <laughs> it should have been Bob Sacamano calling. <laughs> I was like, then I would have been like, oh, Todd Haynes loves Seinfeld. You know? Oh, you know he does, though. It's like the greatest television show of all time, so why wouldn't he like it? That's that was that's my assumption, is that it's the greatest show ever. Why wouldn't he like it? <laughs> So, Josh, thank you for the suggestion and the uh, email that you sent in. We both thoroughly enjoyed watching yeah, we both Safe. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully, the uh, the conversation lived up to your expectations. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say it's a good chance that it didn't. He's going to say, "What the hell is wrong with these guys?" So, Andy, what are we looking at next episode? Next episode, we'll be looking at George Franju's. 1958 French thriller, Head Against the Wall. Really looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. I mean, I look forward to them all, but... uh... Well, be honest. All of them? No, no, I'll be honest. I can think of a couple that will be coming that I won't be looking forward to. Nothing that you picked or anything like that, I just... I mean, were you like looking forward to like The Hobbit or anything? No, I'm not looking forward to The Hobbit. Are we doing that, The Hobbit? I didn't even see the second one. Will I be missing anything? You could always take a break, too, if you wanted. I know you've sat out last year. Not really in, you know, The Hobbit. Unless it was, like, Todd Haynes directed the third one. Then I'd be kind of interested to see what he did, I guess. You can listen to Andy on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast and follow him along with myself on Letterboxd. Film Jive can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. Please send all your thoughts and feedback to filmjive at gmail.com. If you are familiar with George Franju's work or Head Against the Wall, send us an email about it. He also directed Eyes Without a Face. Jude, Judex. How do you say that? I, th- I think it's Judex, I think. But in Fr- French, you want to pronounce the X. That's my only problem. But Jude sounds funny. Well, well, we'll get back to everybody on that next episode. This guy, Crazy Joe, has got a pretty good filmography. He was in uh, the 1988 The Blob, Born on the Fourth of July, Oliver Stone's The Doors. So Oliver Stone must have been a big fan. He was in uh, I hate that movie Safe, so much. Safe, Safe, like we said, Natural Born Killers, oh. Seven. Oh, he's had a shit filmography. I like Natural Born Killers. Oh, it's terrible. Seven. I like Natural Born Killers. You no, you don't. In... Yeah, you do. No, you don't. I haven't seen the movie since 1994. Okay, well, watch but... it again and tell me if you still like it. Uh, My Dog Skip, he was in that. I like I That's a saw... great movie. I was going to say, I understand that was a good film. I never saw it. Frankie but... Munoz. Munoz. Yeah. The Blob, that's good. Yeah, the Chuck Russell version. Yeah. Okay, was safe as good as Guardians of the Galaxy? Let's be honest. Guardians was, Guardians was perfect. Safe didn't make me cry in perfection. No. End of story. (laughs) So thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in next episode. And until next time, keep on jiving.